Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And as we are sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This day, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord. A reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things that come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings and have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, Sundays, that we can come together, worship you, and remember all that you have done um, that you've given Jesus for us. And thank you for the word you've given us as well, and I ask that you uh, speak to our hearts and minds today. In your name, amen. So last February, my family and I, we got a dog. Uh, for some of you, I know you needily need the details. So she's a standard poodle. She started at a caramel color and then turned sort of a dirty white, which was sort of disappointing. 
Uh, her name is Lena. Uh, that's just for those. What was special when we got our dog was my wife and I decided to keep it as a surprise for our kids. Uh, it didn't start out intentional that way. It was just this opportunity to get this uh, puppy kind of came about us a bit unexpectedly and worked in ways that extra made us think about it more. And so my wife and I were talking about getting the dog and we thought maybe we should ask the kids. And then of course we're like, they're kids. What do they know about getting the dog? And they're going to say yes anyway. So their votes don't matter at this point. And then once we decided to get the dog, we're like, well, we might as well keep it secret. We've gotten this far. Um, so, you know, we started setting up everything in secret. We bought all the supplies. We hid them around the house and in the garage, which was probably unnecessary. Our kids are not very observant. Uh, and then the day finally came when we could bring her home. So I was picking the kids up from school while Liz got the dog. And I, I told Corin and Ellis, or my sons, um, there's a big surprise when you get home tonight. And, and then they talked out loud about what the surprise might be. And, it, you know, it's fun. They have no idea. And so it'll, it'll be good. They were sure it was good. So that was nice. That speaks nicely to my, my fathering, I think. Um, and, and, and they're, I don't know, maybe a toy or something is as far as they got. And they wouldn't really, they don't actually try that hard to guess when there's surprises. I think they'll feel silly when they're wrong. But we got them home and they ended up sitting on the couch and they closed their eyes and they covered their ears and, until we had them open them and there was the puppy. Uh, and we, we videoed it. So I was watching the video again this week and their responses were, were, were amusing. They weren't exactly what I expected. Uh, they, they, they looked at the puppy and their mouths were opened and they're kind of smirking and they just kind of stared. And they were confused, and they didn't know what to do. And we're like, come pet your puppy. It's your dog. And then they're like, oh, it's our dog. Wow. And then they were so excited, and they were so happy to get to see it. You know, they, Thankfully, they knew they'd expect good things from us. They just didn't know how big this surprise would be. And it was fun to watch it boggle their mind in that way. I hope you've gotten to experience a surprise like that at some point, or that you get to surprise someone else. But surprises were on my mind this week as, as this chapter of Ruth was coming up. Um, cause I think there's something of a sort of similar situation here. There's no dog in the fourth chapter of Ruth. That's not the point. Um, but we find so many, um, joys and wonderful things in this chapter that are far beyond expectations, that are surprises in so many ways to the people in it. Um, really, I think some of the delight of this book is watching God um, throughout the book, but especially here in chapter 4, watching him at work, but watching him bring these good plans and all these moving pieces into this point of fruition in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And it's so much greater than what they ever actually imagined or expected. It's just surprise after surprise. So the book began not with Ruth directly, though it's named for her. It began with Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her sons Malan and Kilian. And they escaped a great famine in their hometown of Bethlehem by going far away to Moab. But there, the two sons did find wives. But really, within ten years, everything else fell apart because Elimelech died, and then Malan and Killian died, and they had no children. Um, and then it was at that point that Naomi learned that the famine in the land was over, so she went to return home. And when she arrived at Bethlehem, Naomi poured out her pain to the people. It's important at this point to know Naomi means pleasant. But when she get home, gets home, she tells everyone, don't call me that. Call me Mara. That meant bitterness. Because what Naomi said was, the Lord had dealt bitterly with me. She said that she had gone away full and returned empty. And I hope you noticed something interesting as we went through the story there. Naomi told everyone in front of the whole town, basically, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi anymore. And no one ever calls her Mara. 
Not even the, the narrator or author. They all go with Naomi. And it's actually one of those points the book is showing us that Naomi's understanding of the situation here, uh, it's not the whole story. She doesn't grasp all that is happening and will still happen. And then the story has shown us again and again, um, first, that she actually wasn't fully emptied. And then even more, that as empty as she felt, God was working to fill her up again and again, to fill her full. And of course, the main way that Naomi wasn't fully emptied was when she returned to Bethlehem, she came with her faithful daughter-in-law, Ruth, who could not be dissuaded from returning with her. She, in fact, invoked a curse on herself in the name of the Lord if anything would separate her from Naomi but death. Um, we need to use more curses like that. It's dramatic and awesome. Um, so, But throughout the story, then, uh, we watch Ruth just faithfully, lovingly give herself for Naomi. She gives herself in the relationship, but then through so many things she does, through all of her hard work, um, especially by, by following Naomi, expecting only hardship really going forward, and so many more things. But then we watch as God provides not just Ruth for Naomi, he also provided Boaz, who was an honorable and caring person, but he was also a close relative who was under this unique obligation to help care for and protect um, Naomi and Ruth. So in chapter 3 last week, all these things are coming together, and we actually see Naomi beginning to realize that there was still hope. Um, There was still a real chance for goodness in their lives. And so she actually helped Ruth go to Boaz and in a unique way propose marriage. Um, Of course, Boaz accepts as much as he can. He agrees to help. He even actually sends Ruth home um, with like 60 pounds of grain, probably, for Naomi. It was another sign that Naomi keeps being filled. Uh, There's only one thing at this point. Boaz explained that legally there was another relative um, who was closer, and so he had the first choice to aid the family. So Boaz had to include him in this situation. So if you're just joining us uh, today for the first time, or if you like a refresher on this, Boaz, throughout the story, he's called this redeemer. Some translations put it as a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. Um, It's kind of a technical term. It just means someone who has to um, really, most base level, buy out. Buy out of trouble or buy out of slavery. Buy away from someone else. And so these kinsman redeemers played important roles in the families in Israel. They would help care for each other, um, help protect family lands and assets and the family themselves. They might have to buy back people in the family or buy back the land in some way, do all sorts of things. Um, And being a redeemer wasn't a voluntary thing. It was expected of those close family members. So that's what we have coming to the start of chapter four, where Boaz has to work out this role of being a redeemer Um, by finding this other family member and figuring these things out. How is this going to work? He's not first in line. Details have to be going here. So actually the first 10 verses in the chapter, we actually have what's sort of this complicated legal transaction. I I hope in some ways it's exciting for our lawyers and stuff, because like, look, this is sort of like your profession happening way back in the day. Um, Your your profession makes a lot more sense nowadays, I think. Uh, But anyway, so Boaz sent Ruth home to Naomi with this promise that he will act today to see that Ruth and Naomi were redeemed. And then he goes right to the town gate in Bethlehem and begins preparing for this next transaction, this whole situation here. Uh, The setting here might feel a little odd to some of us. It feels like it should probably take place at like a courthouse or some sort of, you know, legal offices. 
they, of course, didn't actually have those things. And the town gate was really the main place that everything happened in town, all the major business, legal discussions. There was just a lot of space there. Actually, often they had benches and things. So it was really well suited for this. And there was just constantly people coming and going. So it made it convenient to find all the people you needed. So, of course, that's where Boaz heads. And lo and behold, very quickly, he finds this other relative, this other redeemer. Then he grabs 10 elders from town and puts them up as witnesses. This way, when everything is said and done, this whole happening will be properly attested. It will be a full right legal transaction. There'll be no second guesses. There'll be no questions about whether or not everything was appropriate here. And really, this can feel a little odd, maybe a little dry, but in some ways, it's also supposed to start building some tension into the story. At the end of chapter 3, things feel really certain. All right, it's going to be great. Boaz is going to marry her. It's going to be fine. But we watch Boaz set this up, and we start to realize this isn't actually a rubber stamp moment. There are important things still up in the air. The most obvious of these is, at this point, we don't know who will marry Ruth. Now, in one sense, that shouldn't matter, right? Her marriage should still mean protection and provision for both her and Naomi. It should mean the chance at children. These are the things the Redeemer is meant to provide, and those were good things. But let's be honest here. We don't want Ruth to end up with this other guy, do we? We want her to marry Boaz, and I don't think that's just for sentimental reasons here. I think it's because we've seen that Boaz is worthy. He's honorable. He's a good man. And Ruth herself is so worthy and faithful. She's such a good woman. We don't want to see her with anybody less here. They're the match we want because it's the best match that we see in this story. But the tension in this this part of the story is that match is not guaranteed. Other things can happen still. There's another piece of tension, though. Um, You watch the situation unfold, and Boaz begins explaining the story to this other um, relative. I find this kind of an odd moment, because Boaz doesn't explain the whole thing at once. He begins just by stating, you know what, Naomi is selling this land, so that means either you should buy it, or I myself will buy it. We are the redeemers. It's up to us. And then it's only after the relative says, I will buy the land, that Boaz brings up marriage to Ruth. It's a little confusing to me. Why doesn't he just put it all out there at once? The best explanation I found here uh, is Boaz is trying to avoid a secondary problem that's just not something we would think of on our own. Um, It actually seems likely that this other redeemer could buy the land without marrying Ruth, or much less likely he could marry Ruth without buying the land. Either of those should be acceptable legally, but they would not be the best outcomes for Ruth and Naomi. If the, the relative buys the land without marrying Ruth, it means that Naomi's direct family loses their claim on that land. And that's the ultimate goal here for Ruth and Naomi is that they can keep that to Naomi's family. They want that land as part of a Limelech's clan. This is their family land, their family place. It's meant for them, so they don't want that separated in that way. But that's not guaranteed here. So what we watch is we're watching Boaz in front of this group of elders, and it seems like a crowd has gathered. This is good drama. Um, and he actually takes these two things, the land and Ruth, and he, he very carefully, shrewdly links them together as he's presenting them. So now, if the relative wants the land but doesn't buy, or doesn't want Ruth, he's going to look really bad in front of this crowd. Uh, he's going to lose a lot of face here. So Boaz is seeing this problem, and then he very craftily heads it off. The man's honor now rides on what Boaz has made an all-or-nothing thing. Either you get both or you get neither. And that works. 
The relative did want the land, but he doesn't want Ruth, so he gives up a claim to all of it rather than try to divvy it up in front of the people and lose that honor. And then we see there's the custom of the time um, to show that he is transferring his claim to Boaz. He takes off his sandal and he gives it over to Boaz. And this leaves me with really the big burning question for the passage. Does he get the sandal back? You know, does he, does he walk home lopsided? Well, Boaz just has a third sandal, or does like Boaz has made the grandchildren pull it out in years? Grandpa Boaz, tell us the story about the sandal when you married Ruth. No one answers the question. It's just a burning mystery. It's beside the point, though. The real point at this moment, with the transfer of the sandal and everything else, is it's all done. Boaz will marry Ruth. He will redeem the land as well, so that provided they have kids, it will be Ruth's first child inheriting Elimelech's land as the heir. This is the best possible outcome in this situation. There were other things that could happen, but instead Ruth and Naomi really get all they could have hoped for, all they could have wanted, and more. Now this result is because Boaz acted so faithfully, with such care for them. But this is also... Uh, this result is also just a great example of God's love and faithfulness in the story. Ruth could have married someone else, but she got Boaz. The land could have been taken from the family, but it was kept. When Naomi left Moab for Bethlehem, she saw no hope for herself or for Ruth. And then even as she began to see otherwise, this outcome um, was the best she could have considered. It couldn't all happen at once, could it? But it all comes true. Naomi felt so emptied, but God was working to see her full again. In the first sermon in this series, uh, Pastor Joel introduced us to the uh, key Hebrew word, hesed. Now, hesed is especially important throughout the Old Testament, and it's a word for God's love that gives meaning and depth to it. Often we find it translated as God's loving kindness or a steadfast love. It tells us that God's love is always faithful. It's always true, uh, that it's never-ending, never-stopping, always and forever love. And God's hesed is on full display here in chapter 4. As Naomi is filled, as Ruth and Naomi are cared for, as all they have needed is being provided for them. Actually, as we see them being really surprised by how completely their lives turn around, that is all God acting out his always faithful love. His hesed accounts for all of this. But also in this story, especially, we see that hesed doesn't describe only God's love. People can act with faithful love too. And it's Hesed in this book that best describes Ruth's sacrifices for Naomi, her faithfulness to Naomi. We actually don't see Ruth directly in this chapter very much at all, but we see the outworking of her faithfulness and her love here. Um, And so much of the outworking of all that she's done so far is unexpected, actually. When Ruth stayed with Naomi, she knew she was leaving behind her family. She was leaving behind her people. She was moving forward uh, with a future that really only looked hard. It looked bleak. But still she clung on. And we see throughout the story, all those expectations are dashed. But then even as things move so forward so positively, we actually see throughout, though, that Ruth is still called the Moabitess. She's still the foreigner who doesn't quite belong. People say she's worthy, but she's not quite part of them. Then in the chapter, we, this chapter, we even see this problem flipped over. The people respond to the upcoming marriage between Boaz and Ruth um, by blessing Ruth in the name of the Lord. They bless her to be like Rachel and Leah, um, who are really two key mothers of the whole nation of Israel. In all this, we see Ruth is actually being brought into Israel's story. 
She's being recognized as someone who shares in Israel's faith, shares in Israel's God. The people are saying out loud that Ruth belongs. She's one of us. And moving forward, she's actually so accepted, so honored by this community that the women will say she is better to Naomi than seven sons, which is, of course, the perfect amount of sons. Ruth never had any reason to expect this type of belonging, but her hesed to Naomi was met and then outmatched by the hesed of God, providing not just this new home for Ruth, but a new people who recognize who she really is. She's not just a foreigner. She belongs. She is so worthy and honorable. They honor her. Boaz, too, here, though, is an example of hesed. Now, if we listen to the other relative, he had concerns that this might be a really risky thing to redeem both the land and Ruth. So that matters for Boaz as far as being hesed in this story. But even if that's not it, we see Boaz being sacrificially kind and generous and responsive to Naomi and Ruth throughout. And Boaz, too, actually, would be pretty surprised by the honor he finds in the story. He'd be maybe the most surprised, though, as his honor is one he never really knows in his own life. At the end of the story, uh, we find this quick genealogy. It's sort of an epilogue here. It's not wholly necessary. The big reveal has already come, but it has so much great symbolic meaning here. First, this genealogy has 10 names, and 10 is an important number symbolically, important for completion. So that having a genealogy with 10 names, it's a way of showing the importance of the family, but especially the importance of the 10th person. But before getting to number 10, um, notice of course, Boaz is included in this list of names, but he's not just anywhere. He's number seven in the list. And aside from the 10th spot, that's the most honored place to be. Seven is always symbolic of, of perfection and completion as well. This is an intentional work by the author. This genealogy has names left out so that things line up in this way. It's trying to point out the honor that Boaz has and actually, his honor is emphasized even more by one little detail that we've skipped at this point at the, from the beginning of this chapter. We have Boaz going to the gate, and he sees the other redeemer. He calls him over. The translation we have says that Boaz calls him friend. It's a friend, turn aside and sit down. That's not actually what it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's more like so-and-so or such-and-such. So Boaz says, turn aside, so-and-so, sit down here. Now, that would sounds kind of insulting, if that's what he says. But the point in the story isn't that Boaz called this man so-and-so. The point is the author's actually taken the man's name from the story, and he wants us to know he took the name out of the story. See, this man did not act as the redeemer, and he edits himself out. But Boaz, Boaz did act as the redeemer. He did more than he even needed to do, so his name is included. His name is even brought into the seventh spot in this amazing genealogy. Boaz has found special honor for his faithfulness, um, but it's one he never knew in his life. I'm still sure in, God, in heaven with God that Boaz finds it all quite amusing, just the same. But for us, this is just another amazing example of how God is acting in love, um, acting in surprising and joyful ways throughout this story. And so throughout the story, we've seen Ruth and Boaz so wonderfully live out Hesed in their lives. And there's been a point of challenge there for us. We see that faithful love in action, so let's put love so faithfully to action in our own lives. Let's be like Ruth and Boaz in the world. But on top of that challenge, there's this overall reminder of what God's Hesed really looks like, what it looks like in our lives, and how often God pours out his Hesed for us. It's beautiful 
But like this story, it's not always what we expect. So in this story, we do find Ruth and Naomi um, getting great material care, cared for in that way. But actually throughout scripture as a whole, we'd see that's not a guarantee for everyone. But one thing God, God does promise, one thing he always blesses his faithful followers with is welcome into his people, like what Ruth found so surprisingly here. We always have the blessing of the church. God in his great love for us has given us each other. We always have this community to be loved by, to be known in, to serve and love in as well. But also we see here, God gives surprising honor. And it's a good reminder to remember, it's not always an honor that we will know or experience in this life. But it is honor from the one, the only one who truly matters. The one who, when we stand before him face to face, will look upon us and loving us, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, my daughter, my son, enter into my joy. We're not yet quite done with the story, though. As we turn back to it, um, there's actually one final concern facing Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. It's probably the biggest concern of the whole story, but the passage moves so quickly here we can miss it. So all that just happened with Boaz, it's wonderful. Ruth and Naomi have security and safety. They will be well cared for. Um, Elimelech's land doesn't have to be separated from the family. These are great, but all the greatest hopes here still rely on a child being born to Ruth. And Ruth has actually been married already for some time and had no children. So as Boaz marries Ruth, this question lingers, will they be able to have a child? And then before we even can properly consider that, the story just jumps to tell us that the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. In this moment, we are told directly how God is acting, so we can't miss it. Um, and when he acts here, there's just no longer any worry, nothing left to wonder about, about. She has a son. Everything that Ruth and Naomi had needed, all they had wanted, everything they dared to hope for, the Lord has provided for them. And then in the beautiful moment of celebration around the birth of the son, Naomi lays him on her lap. It's an image of the one who came home so empty because of God's faithfulness and love being so filled up again. Her lap is full. But the story doesn't end there, as we've already said. Everything has been taken care of at this point. All that Ruth and Naomi had hoped for has come to them. They're safe, they're filled, they have joy and peace. They can spend the rest of their lives knowing God's faithfulness to them in all these things. And actually, Ruth's son, Obed, Obed becomes this really special witness to them that God fills those who are empty, that he loves and cares for his people. But no one realizes the story continues well beyond this, well beyond them. But we get to see this. God was at work in ways, um, way, more ways than they could imagine or understand because we see here that Obed would be the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. David, though far from perfect, he was Israel's most treasured king. And it was to David and to his family that God promised a throne and a kingdom forever. So all of God's great faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz here, it's just a small part of his actual unimaginable faithfulness to his whole people, to his plan in this world. Of course, for the church, this surprise moment is actually so much bigger because we know that it's through Boaz and Ruth's faithfulness and love that God was at work to not only bring a king, but to bring the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the long-promised son of David, comes to us by the great unimaginable work of God and even through the everyday faithfulness of his people. 
So the story for us is a reminder that God doesn't do his work through superheroes or unique, specially gifted people. It's not about super Israelites or super Christians, right? It's a reminder that God works through his ordinary people who are doing their best to love him, to love each other, to serve, to be faithful. And God knows our faithfulness and service. Then when he acts in and through us with all of his immeasurable, faithful, never-ending love, he brings salvation. He brings redemption. He brings hope, goodness, beauty beyond our expectations. The Lord works in all these things, and he never leaves us without a redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us without a Redeemer. Thank you for all of your goodness and beauty um, poured out for us in so many ways. Um, Help us hold fast to you. And then help us, um, knowing your Hesed love, um, to be people of that in the world. To love with such faithfulness and such truth and goodness um, that we can, um, in our love, show people you as well. Amen.